Um, we'll be looking, we're going to cover sort of, sort of, I say, verses 1 through 27. But when we read in a few moments, uh, we'll be looking at just simply verses 18 through 24 and focusing there. And so I would ask that sometime either today or this week, you would read the full chapter of Amos to get a better feel of the context of the, the book. The, um, the Facebook challenges that I see never end. And so the, last week, I was challenged by Dr. Mike Philiber. You guys may remember that he was here a few weeks ago. I was challenged by Mike Philiber to uh, do the 10-day album challenge. Now, the challenge being that you select a cover of one of your favorite albums, 10 of them in each, on each day, and you don't say anything about it, but you just put the album covers on there. And I can't figure out if this is a scheme by the record companies to sell albums. I don't know. But somehow, I'm sure it is. Well, uh, you know, Brian Fisher and I were talking last night, and we both have the same mindset about this. For us, and maybe not for you, we, we're kind of tied a little bit more into just singles, okay? And so when I was a kid, we had these type of singles. How many of you guys have seen one of those before? All right. Well, this one is a favorite of mine from 1974. Kung Fu Fighting. <laughs> Everybody was Kung Fu Fight. I love that. I love it. So 1974 Kung Fu Fighting. And then just a shush. I didn't realize this. I pulled these things out and I'm like, man, I've got one from the 80s. The police. Oh, every breath you take, every breath you take right there. And so as you're thinking about these, the history is interesting because on these 45s, what the record producers would do is like side A was supposed to be the side that was played. It's the one that's supposed to get the, the airplay and it's supposed to have the, the hit potential, you know? But there's always a side B. Now, if you know a little bit about history of side A's and side B's, every once in a while there's been a side B that's just fabulous and it's been a hit as well. Most of the time, though, that's not the case. Like, like for this one here, the police, every breath you take, on the other, other side, it's called murder by numbers. Has anybody ever heard murder by numbers? A couple people have, yes. But is that a big hit? No, Dave, Dave says no, no, not at all. And, and on Kung Fu Fighting, on the back of it is Gambling Man. So I have no, I've never heard that song before. I don't know that I ever flipped it on the other side to listen to side B. Well, when we think about this, today's passage, we're going to hear a recording of the Word of God where He presents a side A, which is the great day of the Lord, and a side B, the terrible day of the Lord. Now, as we read, we'll hear and we'll see the side A and we'll see the side B. Side A being so encouraging. Side B being anything but. Anything but. So let's read uh, Amos chapter 5. And again, we'll be reading from verses 18 through 24 of the text. The Word of the Lord. Woe! to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, 
or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offered me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, uh, this is your word. And sometimes your word is difficult and hard for us. We hear it and we can hardly believe what it says. But it points beyond us, beyond sometimes our own understanding to you, our glorious God and Savior, the creator of all things, who holds all things in his hands. Lord, The reality is is that when we come to Your Word and we don't understand it, or we just struggle with it, Father, the reality is is that there's not anything wrong with You. It's us. And so, therefore, this morning, we need Your Spirit. Your Spirit to guide and direct us as we try to understand and walk in Your ways through Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen. Now, to be reminded of what's been going on in the book of Amos in chapters 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, 14, Amos is delivering oracles from God that justified Israel's judgment. So he's bringing up these things saying, I'm justified in judging you. Now, he revealed how terrible it would be. And he also revealed how determined he was to carry it out. In verses three, or in chapters three and four in the last several weeks, we saw that God laid out his lawsuit, if you will, against Israel. He he laid out their violence, he laid out their oppression, he laid out other things. And now as we come to chapter five, uh, in verses one through seventeen that we did not read, he laments the death of Israel. So this chapter starts out with a death lament song. It's like someone singing over the corpse, so to speak. We don't think much about that in our culture, but other cultures, that is the case. And so there's a death lament that's going on here. But in compassion, it's as though you know, God's judgment is sure, and yet at the same time, you see His compassion as He cries out to them, repent and seek Me and live, even though they're there in the casket. He's calling them to seek Him and live. In the passage that we just read, Amos pronounces the first woe of the book. And it is as it is concerning the great and terrible day of the Lord. So what we want to look at first is side B. Side B, the terrible day of the Lord. And then we'll look lastly at side A. Now we have to have a a true understanding of the context here. Remember that these are God's people. 
At this time, there was no major military threat. It was a period of, of actual military expansion for both Israel. Remember, there's a divided kingdom right now. So there's Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Amos is gone from the southern kingdom. He's gone into Israel. He is proclaiming this message to them. But the same message would apply not only to Judah at the time, but it would apply to us. We need to hear it. And so at this time again, there's military expansion, there's a great economic growth, and this led to incredible wealth and prosperity. Even exuberant luxury and affluence. The military might of Jeroboam II and the extravagant uh, prosperity was only confirmation in the consciousness of the nation about one thing, and that is this. God is on our side. He is on our side. We're growing Things are great. To put it into maybe modern political phrase, and I want to be careful here, but we would be, they'd have hats saying, make Israel great again. You see what I'm saying? And we need to take that serious. And so God's presence was with them, and all this became their assurance that the future day of the Lord would be bright and glorious. Perhaps so bright, they had to wear shades, Jason. They had to wear shades. It's so bright. Now for the Israelites, the day of the Lord would be the dawning of the age of God's complete victory over the nations. And here we see that this term is used for the first time, but obviously it is already much, a much used phrase in the life and ethos of the culture there. It was reminiscent of God's victory at the Exodus, along with all the other victories along the way as God led them out of slavery into the land that He promised them. As a matter of fact, right after the Exodus, in Exodus 15, we read the Song of Moses. Pay attention to this. This is incredible. So the Song of Moses goes like this, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. These victories that the Israelites had were kept in the public consciousness by being celebrated as they would sing the song of Moses. That they would sing Psalm 78. Sing Psalm 105, 135, 136, and many others as, a, as almost a glorious rehearsal of the mighty acts of God in creation and in history and in that which was to come, that they had hope in. The day of the Lord was expected to be a day when God's people inherited all of God's promises and the long-anticipated blessings which He had given to them. Yet, yet here, in this text, when that day comes, Amos says, it will be a day Marked with darkness. This darkness clearly symbolizes great peril. Note the powerful vignette that he uses in verse 19. It kind of reads like one of those, you know, like Warner Brothers cartoons, you know? 
So you're running out the door, running from, you know, the coyote, I guess, and then you run into a lion. And so you see the lion and you turn around, you run the other way and you run immediately into a bear. And then you escape from the bear and the lion behind you and you run into a home and you go, whew, and you put your arm on the wall and a snake bites you. This is what the Lord says at the Exodus. The three-day plague of darkness had shown the awesome power of the Lord. Now, that same darkness would be directed against the Israelites. Never forget that the Lord is a divine warrior. And He is a divine warrior for His people. But here He points out as a reminder to us and all through the prophets. And when you get into reading Jesus and Jesus' teaching and you hear Paul and Peter and the apostles, they all point out that He will not ever play favorites. That is not the way of the Lord. Religiosity for religiosity's sake will not bring His acceptance. And so as we consider this passage for us this morning, in our day and time, I want us to first of all understand kind of as an overview uh, that we understand the day of the Lord, um, that the day of the Lord is an occasion when the Lord actively intervenes to punish sin that has come to a climax. And so what we see is is over and over and over again, this happens, the day of the Lord. It may come through invasion or natural disaster. And it also, though, includes salvation for those who truly repent and seek Him to live. But here's the key that I want you to see. Throughout the Scriptures, all lesser interventions of the day of the Lord come to a head in the actual coming of the Lord Himself in the second coming of Christ. In other words, all the comings of the day of the Lord point to the future. It all points to the future. It's like the cross. All of the Scripture of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the New Testament Scriptures point back to Jesus. Or point ahead to this day coming when Jesus comes to make all things right. All things right. Now the second thing that I want you to see here as we consider this passage for our day and time is that we must consider how dark This future terrible of the day of the Lord is for those who do not seek Him. Um, When I was reading this week and studying, I came across in James Montgomery Boyce's commentary words that I think summarize the sobering reality of the darkness here. So listen to this. When people are in the dark, they are without God. So the day of God's judgment is going to be a day in which those who have not come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be separated from Him. There are those who would say, so what? I'm separated from God now and I'm doing all right. Why should I worry about being separated from God hereafter? The answer is that while mentally and willfully you are separated from God, in very practical terms, you are not nearly as separated from God as you will be. Actually, the presence of God surrounds you. 
God makes this a world in which you can earn a living, in which you can put a roof over your head, feed yourself, enjoy life. God is responsible as the Creator for all of that. If God were not with you, now to some degree, life would be more miserable than you can possibly imagine. But imagine a time when you are completely separated from God, from who all good comes from. Name that thing that you consider good. And then imagine being without it. Friendship. Love. Sex. Health. Peace of mind. Self-worth. Laughter. You see, all of these things are from God. You must imagine yourself without food or clothing, just existing apart from God. When you begin to think in those terms, darkness becomes a serious matter. And more, this day includes isolation, inescapable torment, and utter hopelessness. We need to understand that this is a terribly dark day. Side B, dark day, the great and terrible day of the Lord. Thirdly, we shall, the question is, is what shall we do then to escape? What should we do to escape such a day? Now, it's helpful for us if we understand how to escape, uh, we would understand that in light of how did those people get there in the first place? What got them in that trap? What got them in this place where the Lord is telling them, you think things are good, but they're not. So when the day of the Lord comes, it will be bad. So how did they get there? That helps us to understand how we can escape. So let's understand that first. First of all, and it's the theme throughout, amen, is also that they saw evil. They used, they abused, they trampled, and they exploited in most violent of terms. It has infiltrated, this, 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 this injustice has infiltrated every aspect of their society. They dishonored God by exploiting their neighbor. That's what they were about. And they couldn't see it. Everything's great. Second thing that we see that they, the trap, the second trap that they fell into was false worship. False worship. The text tells us that they, they, they fell away. God says over and over again, it's just no good. Your worship is not any good to me. What the Bible tells us about worship is this, that we are to worship Him alone. There are no other gods before Him. None. We are to worship Him secondly as He has told us. Now, this is a difficult one for people, especially in our culture. You know, we, we will push the extremes of evangelism so much so that we do not, some churches do not really worship the Lord. You see, what He's done in His Word is He has told us, this is who I am and I want you to worship me. But not only that, let me show you how I want you to worship me. 
Now, in the New Testament, there's much more freedom than there was in the Old Testament, of course. But that does not resolve the responsibility of understanding exactly what He wants us to do in worship. You young people can go to any kind of church you want when you go into college. And what I would say to you is, is don't go to churches where Jesus Christ is not preached in the Gospel. Don't go to churches where moralism is the main thing instead of Jesus. Don't go to churches where it's weird. I was watching one of these TV shows, TV preachers one time, and the guy's preaching, and a guy on a motorcycle came and jumped over his head. And I'm like, what kind of foolishness is this? Is this worship or is it a show? I kept waiting for him to break out into, you know, that... The, the greatest show, you know, stuff. And maybe you've seen churches doing that as well. It's all over the internet. This is the greatest show. The pastor dressed up like he, like he what's his name? What's his name again? What? Yeah, Hugh Jackman. I wanted to say Hugh Ross, but Hugh Jackman, Hugh Ross is a, a, theolo, uh, a theologian. Anyway, see, that's how my brain goes. The second thing that the Lord tells us here is he wants us to worship with sincere hearts. He really wants our hearts to be sincere before Him. So, you know, these things speak to us when we come in this room. What are we here for? Why are we gathered here? I mean, couldn't you have a better time sitting at home watching TV with hot chocolate? Or couldn't you have a better time out on the lake or walking on a mountain trail or something like that? Yes and no. There is no better place to be than with God's people here at worship. even though those things are wonderful, and even though those things are needed. But God has called us to come to Him with sincere hearts. So as we're coming here, as we're gathering here, we need to check our hearts and say, Lord, where is my heart before you? I'll admit, it's probably, it may be harder for me than just anybody here. Because I'm sitting up here sometimes, and I'm thinking of 20,000 things. And sometimes I, the Lord checks my heart, and He says, are you worshiping me right now? Aren't you called to lead your people in worship, Patrick? Wake up and worship me. Check our hearts. So we worship Him alone. We worship Him, as He's told us, and we worship Him with sincere hearts. And so we've looked at first, true injustice. They were people of injustice. We've looked at secondly, false worship. Now, finally, the thing that got them into this trap was false understanding. And all this stemmed from moving away from the Word of God. And you may ask, how is that possible that we can move away from the Word of God? Let me tell you something. Just this week, uh, Christianity Today ran a story about a third study that Ligonier Ministries has done of American theology. And they did this in conjunction with Lifeway Research. And Ligonier wanted to know what Americans believe about God, about salvation, about ethics in the Bible. Overall, U.S. adults appear to have a superficial attachment to well-known Christian beliefs, stated the ministry. For example, the majority agreed that Jesus died on the cross for their sin and that He rose again. However, they rejected the Bible's teaching on many key biblical truths let me give you some examples. These are 3,000 people who claim to be Christ who live throughout the United States. Listen to this. They believe that most people are basically good. 
Does the scripture teach that? No, it doesn't. But they believe that. Why do they believe that? Because the culture does. More than two-thirds, 69% of Americans disagree that the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Uh, 58% strongly agree, and, and Ligonier finds this alarming, that uh, God accepts worship of all religions. It's just all one big happy family. There's, there's one God, and we just look at it from different directions. 3,000 Christians, 50, I'm sorry, 51% believe that. A majority of U.S. adults said that worshiping alone with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending, attending church. And only 30% disagreed with that. The Scripture's clear. Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. It's important that we get together. It's important that we worship together. A majority of adults, 59%, say, get this. Where's AJ? AJ's not here. He's teaching, is he? Tell him this, okay? 59% believe that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. I wonder where they got that from. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God the Father. Shocking. 78% of the 3,000 interviewed believe that Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God the Father. What's interesting is, people, is that this view was espoused by an ancient heretic named Arius. And it was condemned as false belief in the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And then again at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And yet 78% believe that. 78%, they must have been Jehovah's Witnesses, because that's exactly what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So is it possible for us as the church to move away from the truth? This should frighten us. False understanding in the Word led the people of Israel to move into false worship and true injustice. And here is the thing. False worship, we would say, is out there in those bad churches. You know, that's where false worship is. It's in the world. It's in the so-called church. But the issue is, is it's here as well. And it's in my heart. Anytime that Patrick Poutit wants to worship in a way that is not God-honoring or God-focused or Christ-centered and Christ-focused, I'm moving away from true biblical worship. Likewise, true injustice, we would say, is out there. Out there's where the injustice is. The world is filled with injustice, but also in here. When we would treat our family members with injustice, when we would treat one another with injustice, it's devastatingly so that way in our hearts. And we need to repent. So some questions that we might need to continually ask of ourselves is where may I need to grow in my understanding of worship? How does He want us to worship Him? What does the Scripture tell us? Where might we as a church or individually need to adjust our worship? That's a fair question. And here's the thing, with worship, not only did they move away from God 
as He desired and revealed how they are to worship Him. But their worship took another step and it became pungent because they were a people of injustice. So God made it clear that He required just and righteous living as a prerequisite of worship. Calvin said this, No one can be injurious to his brother without wounding God Himself. So, where might I need to grow in my understanding of how I'm to live justly? Where may I need to work for justice? Who are the people that I can help? The thing is, is, is that I get, as I get older, when I was young, you know, I just, when we could change the world, we could, oh, we could do all these great things. And, and, and now sometimes it's more of this idea of, 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 of will this ever happen? <laughs> and so the older I get, I realize I do not need to succumb to despair over injustice in the world. But neither do I need to be presumptuous that the victories will be everlasting. But rather, I am to live simply in hope. I think J.R.R. Tolkien speaks to this in this quote. Listen to this quote. This is incredible stuff. Other evils there are that may come. Yet it is... Not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the rescue of those years wherein we are set. Uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. In other words, to borrow another quote from him, we should not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. But together through the ages of the world, we, the church, are to fight in the long defeat with small but glorious glimpses in history of victories which point to one thing. The final day of the Lord which all victory will come. We worship the God who suffers injustice. And the great reality is that God solves all these issues of injustice, of our poor worship, of our lack of truth in the Gospel. He says, seek me and live. And so let's not forget side A of the record. What is side A? Side A is the great day of the Lord. This is the song that we want to hear. And it is actually not played in this chapter. You probably caught that as I read it. This song is not played in this chapter, but it is played in the book of Amos in chapter 9. At the end of the book, the day of the Lord is used as a day of hope. And in the closing two verses, he says this. Listen to these words from Amos. You know, he's pounding them, he's pounding them, he's pounding them. And then he... He says a bunch of other words, but he closes with these two verses. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Think about the future hope that we have. 
But there's more. As we move into the New Testament, the Lord removes some of the fog from these verses and He makes it even clearer. Jesus, the man-God, has come. Jesus, the man-God, has lived a perfect life. Jesus, the man-God, gave His life that we may have reconciliation with the Father whom we sinned against. Jesus, the man-God, suffered. He was crucified. He He died and He was buried. The third day, He rose again from the dead. And then He ascended into heaven and is, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So here's the reality. What we make of the death and resurrection of Jesus will determine how we enter into and come through the final day of the Lord when He returns and we stand before Him face to face. So knowing this, we should as His Spirit-filled ambassadors give ourselves fully to the truth. Give ourselves fully to the truth. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, out of love, we say, Father, what are your commands for us? How are we to live before you? Not to earn favor with him, not to earn our way to heaven, but to please him and love him and live in thanksgiving to him. Can I understand your truth? Help me, Father, to understand your truth. And in understanding that truth, we give ourselves to the worship that He desires. And as we understand that truth, we understand that He's the Creator God, that He created all people, and so therefore we must treat people with justice. You see, here's what I'm saying. The Christian faith is described in Scripture. Listen to me. It is the future of this world. Think about that. It is the future of this world. He is making all things new. This is the reality for the church and how we are to live as as His people now at this day and at this time. It is the world's reality even though they reject it. They reject it all the way to the end. But this is the reality for all that populates this earth and even creation itself as it groans for the revealing of God's sons. So what we have here, and I'm pulling from another book now, we're going to go to the prophet Zephaniah. And he spoke also of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And in chapter 3, he said these words, and I want you to think about them. He says, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What does that mean? This is the song that we want to hear on the great day of the Lord. As we seek Him to live in Christ. God is the Father. He is the one who holds us as His special children, as His special people. And He sings to us. He sings over us. Just as a loving parent cradles a child that sings out of love, so God's song over His people will be born of His great love for us. 
So after a time of hardship, our loving Lord will dry His people's eyes. He will comfort their hearts. And He welcomes them into a new world by what? By singing to them. The great day and the great terrible day of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your love and mercy to us. Thank You for this truth. Let it just resonate in our hearts and lives. Father, may we so be pulled into its understanding by Your Spirit that we can almost feel it. Let Your song begin now, Lord, over us. If we're here and we're struggling, and we're struggling in our faith, and we're struggling in... in um, uh, and maybe even fully rejecting you. Let us hear these words and by the power of your Spirit turn to you now and trust that these things are true, that this is the future of all things. Father, draw us close to you now as we come into this time of communing with you and make it more real to us. May we hear your voice singing to us. May we know that you are our God as you invite us to your table. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.